Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. This week, we're diving below the lakes, streams, and oceans to look at an interesting group of organisms that are incredibly important to aquatic ecosystems. They're usually too small to be seen, but some can be relatively large. They can be plants, animals, or something else entirely. So get ready to go underwater, because we're talking about some of the tiniest organisms in the sea. Plankton. You may be familiar with Plankton because of the show Spongebob, where he served as the main antagonist. But the real-life organism is extremely interesting, too. Plankton are tiny, with most being microscopic, and they're essential to marine ecosystems. Plankton make up the base level of the whole marine food web. But there isn't just one type of plankton. Plankton is the name for a group of many organisms. This group contains some algae, bacteria, protozoans, crustaceans, and mollusks. So not only can they be different species, but they can be in different kingdoms. An individual plankton is called a plankter, and plankton are distinguished from nectins, a group made up of animals that are strong swimmers. Examples of nectins include fish, reptiles, marine mammals, mollusks, and even some arthropods like lobsters. Also, some multicellular algae is not considered plankton, but pleustin, and new stins float or swim on the surface of the water. So not only are there plankton, but there are also nectins, pleustins, and newstins, which sounds like something taken out of a Dr. Seuss book. Their name comes from the Greek word planktos, meaning drifter. This is a well-deserved nickname because many of them can't swim on their own, nor do they have the ability to stay in one place. For many types of plankton, their method of locomotion is drifting in the water, letting the ebb and flow of the tides and currents spread them throughout the oceans. Plankton are found in both freshwater and saltwater. And there are two main types of plankton, phytoplankton and zooplankton. There are around 5,000 recorded species of marine phytoplankton and over 10,000 species of zooplankton. There are two smaller types of plankton known as bacterioplankton and virioplankton. All plankton can be further divided into macroplankton, microplankton, and nanoplankton based on their size. Macroplankton are more than a millimeter in length, and they're primarily zooplankton. Microplankton are between 0.05 and 1 millimeter, and they're a mix of phytoplankton and zooplankton. And nanoplankton are also called dwarf plankton. They're less than 0.05 millimeters in length, and they're mainly phytoplankton. Depending on the size of the plankton, you may be able to see them with just your eyes, but smaller specimens require a microscope to see them fully. 
Krill and species of jellyfish are examples of plankton that are able to be seen by the naked eye. Phytoplankton are compared to plants because they do photosynthesis to gain energy, and zooplankton are compared to animals because they eat phytoplankton. But even though they're referred to as plants or animals, they're more like protists, which are microscopic organisms that aren't plants or animals. They're in their own category. Bacterial plankton are, as the name suggests, a type of bacteria, and virioplankton are viruses. A way to check if a body of water has a lot of plankton in it is to check the water's clarity. If the water is really clear, then there are usually less plankton present than if the water were green or brown. And one of the interesting things about zooplankton specifically is that they have special adaptations that help them stay adrift in the ocean. Zooplankton have flat bodies and are made of material that's very low density. They also have structures called flagella and cilia to prevent them from sinking in the water. Flagella look like tails and cilia look like tiny hairs, and they help them move around. And there are so many plankton that their skeletons make up almost all of the sediment at the bottom of lakes and oceans. Okay, let's take a break to hear about the science word of the day. The science word that I'm going to talk to you about today is anthropogenic. This is a long word, but it's becoming increasingly important to know what it means. Anthropogenic just means human activity, and specifically when talking about wildlife conservation, it kind of describes how humans are impacting ecosystems. So when we say something like the oceans are negatively affected by anthropogenic noise, that means that they're affected by noise made by people. All right, welcome back. So, like we talked about before, phytoplankton are like plants, and they go through photosynthesis. They use chlorophyll and sunlight to make their energy, and they take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen. Phytoplankton are one of the world's most important oxygen producers, seriously as important as plants when it comes to oxygen. They account for half of all the photosynthesis taking place in the world, and they make about 50 to 80 percent of all oxygen on Earth. But this production of gases doesn't just help us breathe. It also helps to make clouds. Basically, when they release gases into the air, it allows water droplets to condense, eventually making clouds. They can also take phosphate, nitrate, and calcium from their environment, which are all essential for their survival. Zooplankton, on the other hand, are responsible for eating phytoplankton. But they'll also eat bacteria and algae, so they're kind of like filter feeders. Bacterioplankton often do photosynthesis as well, just like phytoplankton, but there are also heterotrophic bacterioplankton. Heterotrophs are organisms that get their nutrients from other organisms. For example, animals are heterotrophs. Autotrophs are organisms that make their own nutrients, for example, plants and phytoplankton. While being at the bottom of the aquatic food web, plankton serve as the decomposers of the oceans, lakes, and rivers. The decomposers and detritivores, which are organisms that feed on dead organic material, work to break down and eat dead plants and animals. Examples of these plankton include bacteria, fungi, and pelagic worms. If these organic materials fall down the water column, they're known as marine snow. 
Marine snow is a mixture of fecal matter, skin, sand, and whatever other particles make the descent to the ocean floor. This marine snow actually supports the deep ocean ecosystem. Due to multi-year cycles dependent on temperature, climate change, and the increasing ocean acidification, phytoplankton levels rise and fall. Zooplankton are divided into two groups, temporary plankton and permanent plankton. Temporary plankton are the eggs and larvae of some marine organisms that start their lives in a planktonic state. They're abundant in coastal areas and usually occur seasonally. Breeding takes place at multiple different times a year, so they're present in pretty much every season. Permanent plankton include all of the animals that spend their whole lives in the floating state. There are also phytoplankton blooms, where there are more phytoplankton in a specific area at one time than we would expect. They can last for a couple weeks, but the individual phytoplankton don't typically live for more than a few days. These blooms can get to be so big and can spread so far across the ocean that they can be seen from space. Zooplankton breed rapidly and reach maturity in a short time, leading brief but productive lives. And because of this, populations of some zooplankton can increase by 30% in one day. For this to happen, the plankton have to be in the most favorable living conditions. One zooplankton, called Daphnia, is able to lay their body mass in eggs every two to three days, while the plankton itself only lives for about a month. And here's a fun fact for you. Based on their high reproduction rates, and if the environmental factors that kept them in check were not acting on their populations, then they could cover the entire world with a three-foot-thick layer of plankton in only 130 days. And one of these environmental factors keeping them in check is other animals. Zooplankton are eaten by fish, aquatic insects, salamanders and other amphibians, and large marine animals like whales. And zooplankton don't only live in oceans. Sometimes they inhabit areas that may dry up during certain parts of the year. To survive this, they can actually hide away in protective cases under the mud. Even though there are large concentrations of plankton in saltwater and freshwater environments, zooplankton are not social organisms. They're individual organisms that don't have any reason to interact apart from zooplankton preying on other types of plankton. Some types of plankton engage in migration, but once again, this isn't done as a coordinated effort among the group. Now, even though these organisms are microscopic, they still have behaviors. I'm going to talk about their behaviors right after the break. Okay, here's a trivia question for you. What is the loudest animal on Earth? A, a lion. B, a quail. C, a rattlesnake. Or D, a sperm whale. The answer is D, a sperm whale. They're capable of producing sounds of up to 233 decibels. For reference, the explosion of the volcano Krakatoa in 1883 was just over 300 decibels. Okay, we're back. Plankton's behaviors are usually connected to the presence of their predators. During the day, 
zooplankton stay in deeper waters to avoid predators like other zooplankton and aquatic animals. At night, they rise from the depths to feed on phytoplankton that are present at the surface. We call this migration from the bottom to the surface of the water, deal vertical migration. So from this information, we can say that zooplankton use light in order to determine where to go. Some of the plankton may even go back to their daytime ranges if there's no moon or light to guide them. This migration to the surface is believed to be the largest migration on Earth, with so many organisms being a part of it. Some swarms of zooplankton swim up to 3,000 feet vertically every day in search for food. And while this isn't the longest migration in the animal kingdom, it is the largest because it contains so many individuals. Vertical migration behaviors can vary with different stages of their life cycle, the time of year, latitude, and meteorological conditions. Some types of plankton can also utilize bioluminescence for defensive purposes. The plankton are able to glow in the dark when they're agitated or in distress, and this is actually a convoluted way of trying not to get eaten. By making themselves glow in the dark, they can hope to draw the attention of other predators towards the predator trying to eat them. Other uses of bioluminescence include disorienting and surprising predators. The light that enables bioluminescence is called luciferin. Some organisms need to eat certain types of food or they need a symbiotic relationship to achieve bioluminescence. You can listen to my episode on anglerfish to hear about that really awesome relationship. But the bioluminescent plankton is known as a dinoflagellate, and it can make luciferin on its own. The light produced by bioluminescent dinoflagellates is known as cold light because less than 20% of the light actually generates heat. Glowing plankton can be found all over the ocean, but the buildup of bioluminescent plankton is very common in warmer bodies of water that have narrow openings to the sea as seen in tropical lagoons. These displays of glowing blue dinoflagellates attract vacationers who love observing the beautiful sights that the plankton bring. But while the plankton look beautiful, it's actually a sign of something dangerous happening. In the East China Sea, the eerie blue swarms of plankton have become a problem due to their toxic nature. The blue tears, as it's often called, poison sea life, and they can even poison the humans that swim with them. They're not toxic by nature, but they become toxic because they like to feed on toxic algae. Plankton are a staple of the marine and freshwater ecosystems. They serve as food for animals, and they indirectly affect the food source of humans because fisheries are dependent on plankton. All different types of animals feed on them, like small fish, squid, and even sharks. They're the foundation for so many marine habitats, basically the same as plants on land. If you take away the foundation, then everything above that crumbles. But too much phytoplankton can become extremely harmful to these ecosystems. For example, toxic plankton blooms can cause some serious damage. They occur in warmer, calmer bodies of water that have an abundance of nutrients. A red tide, which is a bloom of phytoplankton that looks red, puts toxins out into the ecosystem and makes it so that certain seafood items may contain lethal levels of nerve toxins. So many different marine organisms are at risk of a toxin called brevotoxin. And the abundance of nutrients that causes these blooms is made by us when we use too many fertilizers on our crops. 
These fertilizers are washed into bodies of water when it rains. So it's important to remember that these organisms are good when we have healthy balances of them. Plankton may also become an important part of the human diet. Starting in 2014, after several years of research, plankton have been found to have very high protein content and a good aid for brain tissue, but it's also hard to digest. Right now, plankton is sold wholesale for a price of 4,000 US dollars. Plankton has also been theorized to be an important part of space travel moving forward. Its uses include food sources and gas exchange. The people in the spacecraft would release carbon dioxide and the phytoplankton would take that carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. Plankton are not listed on the IUCN red list and are harder to classify as threatened or endangered due to their cyclical nature of rising and falling in response to certain stimuli and the fact that so many different species can be called plankton. Since they're not as threatened as other species, here are some organizations that support our oceans. There's the Global Coral Reef Alliance, Greenpeace International, and the Earth Island Institute. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of plankton. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife or on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details. Mm-hmm.